Good morning, Grace. I was noticing empty seats in this service. It was a reminder, we have almost 60 high schoolers up in Big Bear this morning at our spring retreat. Retreat, or retweet, you could retweet that later. That, uh, the retreat, they've been up there um, in the Word together, deepening relationships, getting their eyes on Jesus. You can even be praying for them today as they finish up and drive home safe. Uh, but here we are this morning. We're in the Gospel of Luke. If you're visiting with us, we've been in it, in, in it for almost a year now. Um, and I want us to think for a minute as we start, right at this moment, this point in the Gospel of Luke that we're at, can you imagine the disciples hearing us saying what we just sang? Right here at this point. We just got to last week, if you don't remember. The Gospel has been building and building and building through Jesus' ministry. Jesus, through his words and his works, have been enlarging people's understanding of his identity to the point that Peter finally gets it, and, Peter, and Jesus says, Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ of God. You're the promised anointed one who's, who God is going to uh, make all things right through. So it's building, 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 and then there's these two bombshells Jesus drops, the first of which is what we just sang. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be killed. This, what we just sang, is what the disciples are very soon going to behold. They're going to behold the man upon a cross. And not just any man, but the Christ of God. He's going to be wounded. He's going to be surrounded by scoffers. He's going to suffer in public humiliation and shame like a common criminal. And not one angel is going to come to his rescue to vindicate his innocence and his glorious name. He's going to hang there and he's going to breathe his dying breath and he's going to yield up his spirit and then his lifeless body is going to be lifted down from the cross and wrapped in grave clothes and put in a tomb. Jesus hadn't gotten into all this detail, but that's what he just laid on his disciples. You're right, I'm the Christ of God and the Christ of God is going to suffer many things and be killed. His wounds are going to pay our ransom, like we just sang. Accomplishing God's redemption is going to come at great cost to the Son of Man. He's going to give his life. But then he dropped a second bombshell right after that. And if you want to come after me, if you want to continue being my disciples, then you need to deny yourself, take up your cross daily, follow me. I'm headed to the cross. Come with me. So applying God's redemption is also going to be costly. By, by applying God's redemption, I mean what Jesus purchased at the cross, full forgiveness of sins and the promise of eternal life with God in Jesus' name. His plan to offer that to the world is through the mouths and the lives of disciples who tell about Jesus and make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. And the point of this hard saying that Jesus has just dropped on them is that's not going to happen by accident. It's not going to come without cost. It's not going to be easy. Eric said it last week. If we're coming after the suffering servant on his mission, then we will have to walk his path. It's not hard to imagine that this was a lot for the disciples to take in at this moment, right? It is for us too. 
Even, even though we know we're about to celebrate Good Friday and, and Easter Sunday, we know about his death and his resurrection and his ascension and his promise to come again. We know, know all that, and still this is a hard saying, isn't it? Deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. I don't think I'm alone in, in saying that's the sort of thing that Jesus says that my heart reflexively uh, wants to qualify to death. It just sounds so extreme. I think our natural impulse when we hear that is to want to soften it somehow, put some reasonable boundaries around it, and somehow make that command fit in a comfortable compartment of our lives alongside other pursuits. But it's the sort of command that's all-encompassing. De- deny yourself as you come along with me and you join me in my mission to engage a lost world and to evangelize them, tell them the good news of great joy for all people, and to teach them all that I have commanded so that they might know me and grow to maturity in Christ. If you want to join me in that, then it's going to involve saying no to some things, prioritizing my kingdom first, and it's going to involve taking up your cross, a willingness um, to suffer, a willingness um, to spend, Deny yourself. Take up your cross daily. Follow me. You know, I was thinking this last week after Eric preached, again, this phrase, take up your cross daily. For some of us, I feel like that, that might just seem spiritual and kind of ominous, and I'm not exactly sure in a concrete. What does that look like? And, and this is what hit me this last week. He doesn't say be crucified daily. You can only be crucified one time, right? Then it's over. He says take up your cross daily. Uh, it's a daily mindset and commitment um, and a posture of submission to the Father's will, right? If any moment, I think, in Jesus' own life exemplifies what I think it means for us to come after him, taking up our cross and following him, I think of the Garden of Gethsemane. As Jesus pours out with tears prayer to the Father, if there's any other way to bring and accomplish your redemption, Lord, might it be But when Jesus gets up from his knees, resolute, and says, not my will, but yours be done. And he gives himself, yields himself to the will of the Father, no matter the cost. I think that that's what it means to take up our cross daily. It means as we seek to be part of God's kingdom work, as we seek to follow Jesus, that we embrace God's will daily, on a daily basis, no matter the cost. I heard phrases this weekend a couple of times I'd never heard before, but I like this. The saying was this, put your yes on the table and then let God put it on the map. Put put your yes on the table, not knowing where God's going to put it on the map, and then allow God to put it on the map. That's the sort of submission that I think take up your cross daily is calling for. In light of who God is, He can be trusted that his plans are good and he's going to work all things according to his purposes and Jesus is worthy to be trusted, then embrace on a daily basis God's will for your life no matter the cost. Put your yes on the table. Say, Lord, that'd be a prayer for every day. Father, help me to keep my yes on the table today as I follow you no matter what it costs me. I love that. It's easier said than done, but I, I love that. Because the big question here in the gospel is, is Jesus worth following no matter what it costs? There's a lot in in Jesus' teaching where he talks about 
cost and, and about reward. But the question is, is Jesus worth following no matter what it costs? If following Jesus costs you your family relationships, some of your closest family relationships, maybe it just makes holidays awkward, but even worse, maybe it, it, it deeply divides you and a brother or a sister or your parents or even cuts off relationship. Is Jesus worth that cost? Is following Jesus worth a friend ghosting you because they just don't want to be around someone who is that interested and want to talk about Jesus? Is following Jesus worth your reputation at work? Is it worth uh, inviting uh, uh, scorn and, and mocking and losing the respect of others because you identify with Jesus. I was very aware for a service as, as we're live streaming, and for two years, many of our Grace partners, our missionaries around the world, they watch our live stream service in real time. And I know that there are some of them to go where they went. They had to ask as a family, even with their children, considering their children, is Jesus worth following here, even if it costs me my freedom or our lives? Literally. So we have to ask this question, is the Jesus that we worship big enough to follow no matter the cost? That's, that's the question here. And Jesus answered last week as Eric preached unequivocally, yes. Luke 9, 24. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. That's an audacious claim, isn't it? He says, whoever in other words, there is no one who may pay even the ultimate cost of their life to whom I will be indebted for having done that. N there will be no one one day looking back say, yeah, I kind of gave more than I got in this deal with you, Jesus. No one. Even if you give your life, your gain will far surpass any loss your yes to Jesus might entail. So what does this have to do with the passage that we're in this morning? Well, Jesus is so kind. God is so kind. This isn't the only time in the Bible that God or Jesus tells us a thing that he shouldn't have to do anything more about. We should just believe him that it's true and trust it and follow. But he's so kind and he so frequently shows us and helps us, gives us assurance and gives us a greater confidence by showing himself to us that he can be trusted. And that's what I think is going on here in this scene. He reveals his glory in the transfiguration in a way even more fully to these three disciples and to us because we have their testimony of what they saw in a way that reassures us if we put our yes on the table and then say to Jesus, you put it on the map, wherever you will, whatever it costs, we're putting our trust in good hands, confident hands, hands that win in the end. Last Sunday after Eric preached, I went home and a hymn was stuck in my brain, not because we ever sing it anymore. I can't remember the last time we sang Onward Christian Soldiers. But the first verse says this. It beautifully encapsulates last week's passage, what leads into the transfiguration. Onward Christian soldiers, marching as to war with the cross of Jesus going on before. That's important. So we'll never sacrifice as much as Christ. We follow Jesus and his cross, but then we follow him. Christ, our royal master, leads against the foe. Forward, into battle, see his banner, go. 
From this point on in the Gospel of Luke, that's what's going on. Jesus has set his face to Jerusalem. He's preparing his disciples who are going to join him for what lies ahead, what they're going to see him endure, and what they're going to endure that lies even beyond that. He's preparing them for war. And he wants them to know in this scene, he is their royal master. He's our royal master who we can trust. So turn to Luke 9, verse 28. You'll notice this whole scene is about glory being revealed. We see Jesus' divine glory revealed. We get a glimpse of our future glory here in this passage. And it concludes with this this huge display of the Father's glory, putting a sort of an exclamation point on the scene. So let's read it. Luke 9, 28. Now, about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James, and he went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered. And his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him. Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with them were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter says to Jesus, Master, it is good that we're here. Let's make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone and they kept silent. And they told no one in those days anything of what they'd seen. They eventually told what had happened, but initially they didn't. Let me pray. Lord, there's not one of us here this morning whose whose view of you and understanding of you is perfect. All of our understanding of you falls short of the true magnitude um, of your glory. So Lord, we ask that you'd use this passage to enlarge it, increase it, help us to recognize you are absolutely big enough and worthy enough of our worship and our, our ultimate and total trust. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so verse 28 gives us a setting, but don't just skip right over it as a throwaway verse. Look at a couple of things it tells us. When Luke tells us that these next things happened about eight days after these sayings of Jesus, what are these sayings he has in mind? The Son of Man, the, he's the Christ of God. The Son of Man must suffer. If you want to come after me, It includes denying yourself, taking up your cross, and following me. So Luke wants us to understand that these things he's about to describe in light of the things Jesus has just said. He wants what we're about to see about Jesus to have a bearing on the things that the disciples had just been told. They're connected. And so having told them these things, he takes three of the disciples up on a mountain to pray. 
given what he's told them, um, there are some things to pray about, right? Now, none of the Gospels tells us what Jesus was praying about, but there's a lot of echoes in this scene. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, in particular familiar with Exodus and, and, and the Israelites being led out of Egypt through the wilderness into the land um, with Moses, there's lots of echoes of the ec- Exodus in this scene. I think that one of them is that they're up on this mountain uh, to pray, and I was reminded, Exodus 33, Moses is on the, the, the edge of the, the promised land. He's brought the people through the wilderness, and he's up on the mountain and God has told him to lead his people into the land to drive out all the enemy nations and to to plant themselves there. This is the land he was bringing them to and Moses is, is still anxious and he wants assurance. He doesn't want to go into the land with all these enemy nations if he's not confident that God's glory goes with him and so he says, please show me your glory and God does. He says, I'll make all my goodness pass before you and I'll proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And he does. Well, here, after saying these hard things to his disciples, he takes Peter, James, and John up on this mountain and it's hard not to imagine that one of the things Jesus is praying is, Father, show them my glory. I've said some hard things. Show them my glory. Whether or not that's exactly what he prayed, it's exactly what happens. It's exactly what then God does. First, we see Jesus' divine glory revealed in verse 29 and in 31 in two different ways. First, in his appearance. He's transfigured. Your Bible probably has the word the transfiguration above this passage. And I've recently been rereading the Harry Potter books with my boys. I've already read them a long time ago when they first came out. Betsy and I did. And then I reread them out loud to Lily Mae when she was little. So now, third time through, and I've been reading them. We just finished book three with the boys recently. And realize as I've been in this passage, wow, Harry Potter might mess you up on what this word transfiguration means. In the Harry Potter world, if you don't know, transfiguration is something that Professor McGonagall teaches Hogwarts students to do with a wand, turning one thing into another, Right? with a swish and a flick, right? Turning pin cushions into hedgehogs or things like this, right? Okay, so trans, the transfiguration of Jesus does not mean that Jesus changed from one thing to another. Nothing changed. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The transfiguration, the change of appearance is a revelation to these three disciples of who Jesus is and has always been. It's just showing them. And they see it in his face and his clothing. It says, as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered. I think there's another echo of Moses here. Exodus 34, after God had caused his glory to pass by, Moses comes back down from the mountain and it says the skin of his face shone because he'd been talking to God. He actually covered it with a veil while it continued to glow. But it was an entirely other kind of glowing, I think, that what, the, what they see in Jesus here. It was like a reflected glory. I was thinking of those stars that you can, and planets you can stick on your kid's ceiling, or if you're a grown-up kid, you can stick on your own ceiling. But, you know, you stick them up there, and all day long, the lights are on, and they absorb light, and then you turn off the lights at the end, and for a while, they glow until it sort of all ebbs away. I don't think that's what they're seeing in Jesus here. In fact, if you notice, the cloud of glory comes at the end of this scene after Jesus has already been 
glowing and shining and radiance and dazzling light. They're not seeing reflected glory. They're seeing Jesus' intrinsic glory. He's letting them have a glimpse of who he's been all along as he's traveled with them and eaten with them and and camped out with them. He's been this glorious God. Hebrews 1.3 says Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. And his clothing, too, becomes dazzling white. I think this is a nod back to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel had had this vision of God's anointed one in Daniel 7, 9. And he says in this vision, I looked and there were thrones placed and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow. The hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. So this man, Jesus, their rabbi, who's the Christ of God, he's the Ancient of Days. Without beginning or end, Jesus the man was born, conceived and born, but Jesus the Son of God was never conceived or born. He has always been and always will be, and they get a glimpse of this. And at this time, just before he goes to the cross and he's about to appear, his very weakest and most powerless, he reminds the disciples and us that he is not weak. Thinking of the movie Aladdin, at the end of the movie Aladdin, remember Aladdin's genie? Um, he's, he's, he's explaining to Aladdin why being a genie, actually, um, he's imprisoned by the lamp. And he says, it's all part and parcel of this whole genie gig. Phenomenal cosmic power! And he rises up. Remember that? Remember that, Levi? Itty bitty living space. Right. You might be tempted to think, yeah, that's kind of like the incarnation, right? The Son of God, eternal, cosmic, phenomenal power, itty-bitty living space, but not at all the way Aladdin's genie means that. What he means is all that cosmic, phenomenal power is imprisoned and constrained and limited by the lamp and the rules surrounding the lamp. But Jesus' human nature does not limit in any way who he is, his divine nature Jesus didn't give up an ounce of his Godhead when he took the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. When Paul says in Philippians 2 that Jesus emptied himself by doing that, it wasn't by uh, temporarily setting aside or leaving or, or, or subtracting from himself his divine glory. He, he emptied himself by addition, by taking on a human nature to which he, he submitted and lived. Colossians 1.19 says of Jesus, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Not some of the fullness of God. So God in this scene pulls the veil back just a crack and gives the disciples a glimpse of this fullness. And he does it now before the cross comes. I, I was very thankful for this. Fred Sanders pointed me to a guy I'd never heard of before. Of course, Mike Mills has heard of him. He's a church historian. Uh, Joseph Hall. He was an English bishop, end of the 16th century, early 17th century. And uh, one of the things he wrote was just a collection of meditations on the life of Jesus and the Gospels. And I love this observation he makes about the timeliness of the transfiguration here before Jesus goes to the cross. Here's what the disciples see. Jesus shows them his head shining with glory. This is my paraphrase. His English was much more archaic than, than this. So here's, here's my paraphrase. Jesus shows them his head shining with glory just before they will see it crowned with thorns. They see his face shining like the sun 
when it will soon be spit upon and slapped. They see his clothing glistening with heavenly brightness just before they will see him stripped naked with his clothes divided at the foot of the cross and gambled over. They see him adored by saints from heaven, Moses and Elijah, as he's about to be mocked and scorned by the basest men. Flanked by two of Israel's greatest saints when he's about to be hung between two guilty criminals. Jesus is transfigured on the mountaintop when he's about to be disfigured on the mount of crucifixion. Why? So they wouldn't forget his divine glory remains unchanged even when he looks his weakest. He wanted them to know as they watched him go to the cross that the ancient of gaze can't just be pinned to a piece of wood like an insect in a science museum, sort of helpless and held there. The only thing that held Jesus, the Son of Man, to the cross was his own will to love sinners and lay his life down as a ransom for them and to honor the Father by perfectly pleasing him and doing his will in saving sinners. That's what held Jesus to the cross. So when we see his weakness, we're actually seeing his restraint. The man of sorrows never ceased to be the ancient of days. And his appearance points to that. But secondly, verse 31, his imminent accomplishment points to this. Moses and Elijah, verse 31, appear in glory, which we'll come back to in a minute, and they speak with Jesus of his departure that he was about to accomplish. Think about that for a minute. Think about Moses and Elijah. These guys had a lot of accomplishments, significant ones, right? Ones that if you were with Moses and Elijah, you'd probably be pretty interested in asking about. Tell me about standing in front of Pharaoh and demanding that he let all of your people go. I mean, he's the most powerful man in Egypt. Tell me about the plagues that descended on Egypt and about Pharaoh's armies chasing you to the Red Sea. Tell me about when God, through you, part of the Red Sea, all of God's people walked across on dry land. Tell me about water from a rock and manna showing up every morning miraculously from heaven. Tell me about that, right? Or Elijah, right? On Mount Carmel, he's the only prophet of Yahweh standing face down, showdown with all these prophets of Baal, two altars, two sacrifices, whose God is the true God. Prophets of Baal cutting themselves and crying out all day long, doing everything they can think of to try to get their God to pour fire down and burn this sacrifice. Nothing happens. Elijah steps up, covers it all with water to just make absolutely sure Everyone doesn't miss the point. And he cries out and God pours down fire from heaven, burns up the sacrifice, the altar, all the water. These guys had some accomplishments. <laughs> and I love that in this scene, P- Peter and James and John, they, they become fully awake. And here's Moses and Elijah and they're talking with Jesus about all that he is about to accomplish, about his departure. Your Bible might have a footnote there. You can look down and see. If it does, it says, probably says, The Greek word is exodus, the word for departure that Moses and Elijah are talking with Jesus about his exodus that he is about to accomplish in Jerusalem. These two men who represent the law and all the prophets, all that God had said to anticipate the chosen one, the Christ of God, they're way more interested about what he's about to accomplish. All their accomplishments were merely pointing forward to what he was. It's what Peter says in 1 Peter 1. 
Verse 10, concerning this salvation, Jesus' departure that he was about to accomplish, prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, they searched and they inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicated when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them they were serving not themselves but us, in the things that have now been announced to us, things into which angels long to look. So Moses and Elijah aren't the only ones intensely interested in what Jesus is about to do in Jerusalem. It's what it all been pointing forward to, the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. What Jesus was about to accomplish was the truer, the, the better exodus. I mean, think about, you know, so with, with Moses' exodus was accomplished through God pouring out plagues upon their enemy, the, the Egyptians, to force their hand to, to release them into freedom. But Jesus' exodus would be accomplished as he, on the cross, subjected himself to the ultimate plague of God's wrath on his our sin upon his shoulders, like we just sang. And he became the cursed one, the plagued one, so that the plague of God's wrath doesn't have to fall on us. In Moses' exodus... The blood of spotless lambs were painted over the door of God's people as a reminder to them that just because they're not the Egyptians, they're still not holy. They're not without sin. And blood must cover the guilt of sin. But Jesus comes and he lays his life down and sheds his blood as the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And there's subsequent glories here. Moses' exodus, the subsequent glories were he led Israel out of bondage through the wilderness into a land that was abundant, flowing with milk and honey. Um, they lived in houses they didn't build and, and, and picked fruit and vegetables they didn't plant and brought them into an inheritance and rest. Well, Jesus' exodus has subsequent glories. Jesus' exodus is going to lead billions of people out of bondage to sin, out of the fear of death, into eternal life and glory with God forever. That's what that hard saying was all about in last week's passage. When he says, if you want to come after me, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. It's gain. This is the one-way journey that I'm leading you all on into your inheritance. This is how we follow Jesus to, into our inheritance. And the glory in the scene is meant to encourage us not to lose hope when it gets hard. And where God, when God puts our yes on the map in a hard place that we wouldn't have chosen. Second place we see glory here, it's not the, the primary one, but I don't want us to skip it, is we get a glimpse of our future glory in verse 30. Because Moses and Elijah are here, not a hologram of Moses and Elijah, Moses and Elijah appear here in glory. So it's Moses and Elijah, but it's like, you know, the upgraded version. Moses and Elijah somehow in glory appear. Moses had been dead for 1,500 years. No one knew where his grave was. But God, God buried him on Sinai. He never physically entered the land of promise himself. He had to be content just looking at it from a distance, knowing God's going to take my people there. But he had died 1,500 years before. Here he is, standing and speaking with Jesus. He's not looking into the promised land from Moab uh, anymore. He's looking into the promised land of a new earth 
from heaven with a glorified waiting to be fully glorified in the day that Jesus returns. And the same with Elijah. Elijah had disappeared. He was taken up in a whirlwind by God, never to be seen again. Here he is 900 years later. He's talking with Jesus. It's this glimpse of our future glory. It's a reminder of what Jesus said, that whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Here they are eagerly discussing with Jesus what he's about to accomplish. Listen to this from J.C. Ryle, another dear saint from the past. He says, let's take comfort. Uh, I have a slide for this. I forgot for a service. There it is. Thanks for having it queued up. Let's take comfort in the blessed thought that there's a resurrection and a life to come. All is not over when the last breath is drawn. There's another world beyond the grave. But above all, let's take comfort in the thought that until the day dawns and the resurrection begins, the people of God are safe with Christ. There is much about their present condition, no doubt, which is deeply mysterious, questions we cannot answer, but let it suffice us to know that Jesus is taking care of them. And he will bring them with him on the last day. He showed Moses and Elijah his disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration, and he will show us all who have fallen asleep in him at his second advent. Our brothers and sisters in Christ are in good keeping. They are not lost. They've just gone before us. And if we go and join them before the day returns, day Jesus returns, neither will we. We're not lost. Just waiting for the day where Jesus is going to set everything right. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Final thing, final glory that we see in this scene. We see a display of the Father's glory. And it starts in verse 32 with Peter um, with a, an epic fail. Right after he had a big win, you know, last you know, week, Peter finally hits it right on the head. Who do you say that I am, Peter? You're the Christ of God. Exactly. <laughs> Very next scene, Luke has to tell us he didn't know what he was saying, right? Verse 32, um, they wake up. He recognizes who these two men are, what they're speaking about. They're seeing their rabbi Jesus with his face altered and his glow, clothes gleaming in blazing white. And then Peter, uh, Moses and Elijah are leaving. And he says, wait, wait, wait. Master, it's good that we're here. Hold the, don't leave. Let's make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And Luke says he didn't know what he was saying. He'd drawn a couple of wrong conclusions about this scene. I think the first one is when he says, um, it's good that we're here, let's make tents. He doesn't just want to camp out. Let's make tents is kind of like Peter says, we need to celebrate this. Like the Feast of Booths. If you know what the Feast of Booths was, the Feast of Booths was a, a feast that God had commanded Israel to celebrate on an annual basis once they'd been brought into the land of inheritance and they weren't living in tents anymore. They were living in houses that they hadn't made. But once a year, God said, I want you to go outside the house. I want you to build a tent outside of your house, a structure with branches and leaves. And I want you to go out for a week and live in it as a reminder that you used to be slaves in Egypt. And God rescued you. You lived in tents for a generation, but he planted you in the land. And so it was a reminder not only of God's past deliverance, but it was a reminder that they were living in the inheritance, right? That God, that they'd arrived. God had brought them into the good land. 
Peter's impulse here with this scene is sort of like, let, let's, let's sort of treat this like a feast of booths. It's good that we're here. Let's, let's camp out, <laughs> right? But Jesus had just told them the Christ of God must suffer many things and be killed. We're going to Jerusalem, Peter. That's what Moses and Elijah are speaking to him about. His exodus that he's just about to accomplish. This is no time for tents. This isn't a mountaintop experience to stay and enjoy. It's a preparatory moment to strengthen their faith and resolve to follow Jesus to his cross and their, their own on the other side. I think the second wrong conclusion he, he makes here has something to do with, hey, let's make three tents. Kind of like we got three VIPs here, one for Jesus, but also one for Moses and, and one for Elijah, right? And, and I think that that's also part of his misunderstanding because God, the Father, immediately interjects, right? Look at um, verse 34. As Peter is saying, let's make tents, one for each, <laughs> a cloud comes and overshadows them. God builds his own tent right around them all. Just whoa, cloud cover comes in. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And there's this voice from heaven, verse 35, and we've heard a similar voice from heaven earlier in Luke, but this time, the voice from heaven, the Father says, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. If you remember, uh, back in Luke 3, Jesus' baptism by John, the, the Holy Spirit descended visibly like a dove, and there was a similar voice to heaven, but the, one of the differences was, at Jesus' baptism, the Father is primarily speaking to Jesus, the Son, he says, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. With other people, obviously, listening in, but it's addressed to Jesus, the father, communicating that he's well pleased with his son. In this scene, he speaks about Jesus in the third person. Clearly, the audience is Peter, James, and John. And he says, this is my son, my chosen one, the Christ of God, in other words. And what's most important here? Listen to him. Listen to him. These hard things he's just said, listen to him. When he says, deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow me, and if you do that, you will save your life, not lose it. Listen to him. He's worth following no matter the cost. But the listen to him should also point forward, not just back to these hard things that Jesus has just said that they're trying to come to grips with, but from here to the cross now in the rest of the Gospel of Luke, Jesus has a lot more things to say to his disciples to prepare them as he, as he gets nearer the cross. And so here's this moment, seeing the glory of Jesus, his, his divine nature and glory and power, listen to him. You can trust him. As we finish, I want to give you a minute or two for us to just silently pray. I, I've been thinking this week about that verse. If you want to come after me, it's all-encompassing. If you want to come after me, it doesn't mean fit following me into a comfortable cubby of your life. It means your whole life is yielded to me. Your whole life, in one sense, is a yes you're putting on the table and allowing me to put it on the map. I've just been... None of us take that as seriously as we ought. God can help us with this. Can you imagine what God might do through us here at Grace if we began on a daily basis, that, that this verse became a daily prayer for us? 
as we think about God's called us to make disciples. There are people living in our neighborhoods that you work with, in your family, in our reach here, some of whom don't know a single Christian who could even tell them about Jesus. And that might be you. As we want to share, evangelize and share the gospel and see people come to recognize the glory of God in the face of Christ and to trust him. And we want to be part of helping people now grow in Christ and become disciple-making disciples. If we were all, as a church, every last one of us saying, okay, the way there is we come after Jesus, we deny ourselves. It's going to involve saying no to some things. It might involve cross. It might involve um, God putting our yes on the map in places or in ways that we wouldn't have chosen for ourselves. But it will, we will gain. What might the Lord do? So I want us to pray in light of that. Let's bow. I, I want to pray, and then I'm going to give a moment for you to just personalize this for your context and the sphere of influence God's given you, the people whom God has put in your life, the gifts that God has given you. But we want to pray this way. Lord Jesus, I want to be used by you. I want to be an instrument for your kingdom. I want my life to contribute to others coming to know you and surrendering their lives to you. This morning again, Lord, here's my yes. I'm, I'm laying it on the table. Place it wherever you will. And help me to keep that yes on the table no matter the cost. Take a minute, pray on your own, and we'll close with a final song.